Hello, hello, and welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. Hi, everyone. You're here with me again, Jack. It's so nice to have you back. Thank you for coming back to Polar Times and for tuning in and for liking and subscribing and all that lovely stuff that you do. We have an excellent episode for you today. Uh, possibly, actually, we're going to make it into two episodes because we did that thing again where we chatted to my uh, guests in this case, and it was so good and so interesting that our editors couldn't bring themselves to chop anything out. So instead of a really long episode, we're going to have two shorter episodes, which is maybe just as well, because today we're not just visiting one pole, we are visiting two poles. So have you ever wondered what the difference between the Arctic and the Antarctic is? I mean, sure, they sound and look um, pretty similar. You know, they're all very cold, they're very far away, they're very uh, covered in snow and ice. You might know that one's north and one's south, obviously. You might know that there are bears at one and penguins at the other. But beyond that, how similar actually are they? Um, and what are the... Um, what are the key differences, I suppose? What are the, the, the unique threats that each are facing in today's world? Well, I have two guests come on today to talk all about just that, the, um, the similarities and the differences between our lovely poles. They're both early career researchers, but they both have lots of field experience, which we got into and have some fun stories and some fun games for you. And uh, yeah, I just had an absolutely lovely time chatting to them both and learned a lot. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a good one. So hopefully you enjoy. So this is going to be part one. They're going to be talking about um, literally what I just said, the differences and similarities. And then in part two, we're going to get on to more about their research and then some more kind of fun questions as well. So yes, thank you for coming back to Polar Times. Here we go. Part one, differences between the Arctic and the Antarctic. Okay, welcome back to Polar Times, and thank you again for joining us. I have two lovely guests joining me today, and they are coming from kind of opposite ends of the world. As usual, this is in the first part of the podcast, we call this the icebreaker, where I ask them to introduce themselves, and how did I ask them how they came to polar life, I suppose. So would you like to introduce yourselves one after the other? Thank you, Jack, for having us. Uh, my name is Maike Weerdestein, and I am a PhD student at the University of Oslo in Norway. I think for a lot of people in polar science, their path to polar science wasn't very direct and straightforward. wasn't mine either. Uh, I actually started with aerospace engineering, and it, yeah, it took a while before I got attracted to polar science. The first time uh, was from a quite a different perspective, but it was research on Antarctic uh, wind turbines, uh, so designing wind turbines which would um, survive in Antarctic conditions to uh, provide power to the research stations. And that was the first time that got me thinking about uh, sustainable energy, but also about the poles and more earth observation themes. And that way I got into um, a program focused on remote sensing and geoscience and uh, where um, where I learned about interactions between the growing and melting uh, ice and how that affects the shape of the earth. And then from a quite physical perspective, looking at how that then again affects the earth's rotation. 
And uh, now I'm still sort of, uh, yeah, working with interactions between uh, the ice sheets and the solid earth in my, uh, in my current employment at the University of Oslo. Thanks, uh, Jack, for having us here. I add to what Michael was saying. It's really nice. And my name is Renato Boras Chavez. I'm a, I just finished my PhD on polar research. I focus on ecology and evolution, so mostly biology. And uh, now I'm currently putting together my postdoc uh, project. It's just ready. It's, uh, it's been submitted already. And we're just kind of waiting for finger crossed. <laughs> How's it going to be? I'm a researcher from the Center of uh, Ecology and Sustainability uh, in Chile, the CAPES. It's called CAPES. It's, um, yeah, the way, the way I got to polar research was because I used to be a kelp forest ecologist. I did my master's degree on kelp forest and, and San Diego State University with uh, Dr. Matt Edward and with him, I was lucky enough to go and participate on, on a more broad scale project happening in Alaska. So I spent a couple of years in Alaska and although it's not, it's not the power circle, it's still kind of gave me the glance of, of how amazing these um, landscapes were. So when I came back to Chile, I'm from Chile, um, I really wanted to do something on, uh, in Antarctica or, or as close as it could be possible to, to the pole. And that's when I decided to completely switch from kelp forest to what it is, polar ecology, basically. And then it's, it's been like after I went first time, I, I never stopped going, basically. I became an Antarctic fan and, and have been doing a couple already, a couple of projects over there. And now one the one that I'm putting together is in, uh, it's going to happen in Chile, but it's very related to Antarctica as well. So, yeah, so I think I'm going to stick to that. And then I became a part of APEC, which is, it was even, it kind of dragged me even more to <laughs> do Antarctic outreach, which is also, I'm really interested in too. Okay, brilliant. I mean, that, both of your projects and what you work on sounds absolutely fascinating. I'm regretting not having you on <laughs> individually just to, just to talk about those. So, uh, but yeah, we can talk about those a bit more. The theme of today's episode, I suppose, is kind of the Arctic versus the Antarctic. And this was like a little project that you ran as part of March Polar Week, because as you've said, you're dialing in from quite different places right now. Mike, are you in Oslo right now? And Renato is in Punta Arenas in Chile. So, and I'm sure that um, most of our listeners know the difference between the Arctic and the Antarctic kind of on the surface, that one is north and one is south. And people might know, I suppose, that the Arctic is ocean surrounded by land and the Antarctic is the other way around but then beyond beyond that I imagine it's just kind of like people think oh cold faraway places and while they do have a lot in common they also have a lot of differences so they're kind of what we're focusing on um, today so my actually firstly I just wanted to ask you to how did you two meet and connect and come up with the the Chile versus Norway project or, or idea? Uh, so Renato and I yeah, personally met uh, through a common colleague uh, and uh, that gave me also the opportunity to, to go to Antarctica to uh, the Chilean research station where I met many more of uh, Renato's uh, colleagues. So and then, yeah, we, uh, we kept in t- touch and we knew uh, 
both of us were involved in Apex in uh, in our own countries, and we we just threw some ideas at each other of uh, we should we should come up with some collaborative outreach uh, activity because not only Chile uh, or not only like Arctic and Antarctic, but also Chile and Norway have a lot of uh, similarities and uh, a lot of difference that we wanted to highlight to the general public. So yeah. Yes. You came up with this kind of Chile versus Norway hashtag, which is like Arctic versus Antarctic facts. So Renato, where did that kind of come from? Yeah, like Michael was saying, it's um, we really wanted to put together and also kind of to put together the relationship that both countries have with with each pole. And um, because there is a an evident, perhaps an evident geographical connection, but that the tiny, tiny bits of that connection are are very fairly unknown, and and a, a, a comparative perspective really helps uh, to um, understand what is what is maintaining that connection, which is whether only um, weather or, or or geographic, or there is also like a human component. So we 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 push to that by doing some. Uh, uh, work groups, and I think uh, one of the persons in the group, group, uh, work group came up with the hashtag, and we obviously plan a lot more than what we end up having, having, but it was a very nice first approach for us to be able to put uh, as much as, I mean, all that information and to co- sort of package it for, to, to be able to spread it around um, sort of clear enough for kids and, and also like non-scientist uh, people, uh, which it was one of the main goals the whole time. Yeah, and it's something that Apex is also very keen on, isn't it? The outreach and the uh, public engagement. Yeah. And actually, exactly. science in general, it's very much uh, people, a lot of people it seems, really enjoy that kind of thing. So yeah, it was a really good idea. I really, that's how I really enjoyed it. So you're just talking about those kind of national relationships that your respective countries have with the poles can you kind of tell us a bit about what those relationships are and what they're like like um currently and maybe also in the past as well um so um i'm not a norwegian myself uh but i've lived in norway for a while now that i uh that i'm more aware of some of the uh polar exploration history with the uh, of nansen uh, crossing the Greenland ice sheet uh, on skis. Um, Roald Akmusen uh, being the first one with his team to um, uh, to uh, get to the South Pole. So Norway has uh, has had quite a long uh, history of, of yeah with with not only the Arctic but also the Antarctic, and then and then of course a large part of it is it's that it's geographically uh, located so close. Um, to the Arctic, with also having uh, the Svalbard archipelago even further up north, um, being even a uh, yeah, like a, giving even more access um, to uh, to the um, uh, the polar regions. Um, so not only uh, geographically, but um, also uh, especially in the Arctic, that um, people actually live uh, year round in these regions. Uh, and maybe Renato can highlight uh, the difference and similarities what the relationship is uh, with Chile and the Antarctic. Yeah, uh, well, it's, it's kind of the same when it comes to geographical location. If you think about the five entrances that you have uh, to Antarctica, uh, Chile is the closest 
that you can get to the, in this case, the Western Antarctic Peninsula. So, um, and there is an historical relationship, like and there's, there's, um, there was ice here basically in most of Chile, in three quarters of Chile, and it was extended all the way from Antarctica as well. So, um, so there is obviously, uh, for example, in the case, I'm, I'm, I'm usually gonna be focusing what I say in, in, uh, regarding biology, but I mean, there is a phylogenetic relationship between several species around Chile uh, that are connected with uh, the species on Antar in Antarctica. And also some of them are still going back and forth through Antarctica. So the movement patterns of, of multiple species as well kind of gives this connection and, and kind of um, reduce this uh, thought that the Drake is really uh, a barrier that the Drake Sea uh, would, would be a barrier that it stops everything to go back and forth within the continent. And yeah, as opposed to a little bit of what Mikey was saying, we, there is no really indigenous in Antarctica. So there is the closest, again, the closest indigen indigenous from Antarctica would be some still uh, active indigenous from uh, around this area, which is the tip of South America. And, uh, and, and, and also you don't, you don't really have a population in Antarctica. You only have floating, a floating population. There's been, uh, I think, 11 uh, people that have been born in Antarctica, but they are uh, considered as um, new newborns of the specific uh, research program, or in this case, or in this, well, most of the militaries. Uh, research stations that are around Antarctica. So yeah, I, I mean that. I think that's the big difference. That there is a, quite a big population, or, or a lot of humans can be found in Antarctica in, in the Arctic, as opposed to what you find in Antarctica. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And um, I suppose what I was really also wondering is when I talk about kind of national relationships, I suppose to the poles, what. Well, I'm, I'm thinking kind of like what is people's relationship to the Arctic or the Antarctic? Like, um, and I'm, I mean, kind of like the general public on the street. Do people, um, is it an issue that they are interested in or care about? I mean, obviously, like you say, in Norway, a large part of it is in the Arctic. So <laughs> it is like a big feature of their lives, obviously. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah. In Norway, um I think uh, people are very, well, of course, uh, because a part of it is above the uh, Arctic Circle, of course, people are aware that uh, the part of their country uh, is in the Arctic. Um, but also Norwegians are, uh, are I think, proud of their uh, history and relationship that they have uh, with the polar regions, which, of course, a uh, large part comes from their, um, yeah, their history of polar exploration. Yeah, well, I suppose it, um when Amundsen was first at the South Pole, that's like a massive <laughs> claim to fame, wasn't it? Apart from all the Arctic exploration as well. So yeah, that's not especially yeah, especially since uh, I mean, Nor yeah, Norway is uh, is laying partly in the Arctic, and they uh, they still manage to be uh, the first ones on the South Pole. Yeah. <laughs> so that is yeah. that is quite impressive, and it is something to be um, to be proud of as a nation. Yeah. When it, uh, when it comes to Chile, um, well, you you know how, how long and extended it is. We have 
huge desert in the north of Chile. So they probably, the populations around there are really, don't really feel much of, co of connection with Antarctica, even though some of the uh, atmospheric processes that occur in, in the desert, for example, in Chile, are because of the weather in Antarctica, for example. So, uh, but in, when it comes to Punta Arenas, there is more like an um, identity, I think is the word. They feel more like an identity with uh, Antarctica, uh, because there is a long history of trying to to extend those uh, territories as part of Chile. If you if you talk with uh, militaries in Chile, for example, and and even even this region, this region is called Magallanes and the Chilean Antarctic, which is not true. <laughs> I mean, the, it's it's nobody owns really Antarctica, but we uh, still respect the right of the claim that happened early in, in, in time. So, so we are still have a duty with the administration of those territories that we claim. And that doesn't mean that they, as, um, they forbid the entrance or, or, or more resource stations of other countries, but they just have to make sure that everything is under control and regulated according to the Antarctic Treaty. Um, and I think that role, that more administrative role has made this region to be more connected to Antarctica than because I think the science itself, it's relatively new. The approach of science, it's, uh, I, I will say that the peak started in the 90s when the program changed in, in Chile as well. So, and now there is a huge, um, there is a huge effort uh, condu being conducted in, not just in Punta Arenas, but around the country too, to make the people understand how close we are of this, of this place and how relevant can, it can be for for processes occurring in Chile as well. Mm -hmm. And what's it like living in Punta Arenas, which is really kind of a gateway city oh, nice. to the Antarctic? Obviously, that must be part of the psych and social fabric there as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's also, as the, the environment, last night I was, uh, there was, a, it was a very windy night and that wind, the only, other place that I have experienced it is in Antarctica. So it's still, you can feel it in the air. It's like, you can feel Antarctica in the air around here. And, and that's probably also what motivated me to kind of stay here. <laughs> I was gonna also ask how the, the polar organizations in Norway and in Chile vary in terms of their kind of priorities, I suppose, and if they do vary. I mean, obviously Antarctica is set aside for just scientific research by the treaty and the Arctic Council does a really good job of you know bringing all the Arctic states together for collaboration and stuff like that and so that's a bit of an open-ended question but uh, <laughs> if you if you can have a stab. At least Chile it's uh, when it comes to Antarctica uh, we have the Chilean Antarctic Institute and the Chilean Antarctic Institute is the responsible of not of the logistic support for scientists in Antarctica and together with the Chile Antarctic Institute, there is a close relationship with the army and the air force. So we, one of the uh, advantages we have is that there is a, a fairly nice airport to arrive to uh, Western Antarctic Peninsula and not just, not just um, a military airport. It also, there's also a commercial flight that goes there. Um, so there is a lot of tourism happening in, in Antarctica as well in the Western Antarctic Peninsula. And, and they basically, basically ENAT, which is the Chile Antarctic Institute, is the center of operations into whatever, anything is going to happen in Antarctica regarding Chile. 
specifically, or some countries that do not have the possibility, they don't have, a, for example, a research station in Antarctica. What they would do is they will contact Antarctic programs, and quite a few times it happens that countries will go try to get to Antarctica through the Chilean program too. So I think, but that doesn't mean that the science is focused in the institution itself. Universities do science, but they we have fund specific funding, internal fundings that will go to specifically to Antarctic science, and those are administrated as well by the Chilean Antarctic Institute. I think that's the way kind of works. So whatever you want to, whatever has a scientist, whatever you want to apply, plan to to do there, at some point it's gonna go through uh, this institution, um, and and there will be some logistic support as well, which is the most expensive part usually, <laughs> and and yeah, and I think I think that's the way it's kind of organized here at least. Or uh, yeah, when it comes to Norway, I don't believe uh, we rely that much on the um, on the things that the, the Air Force or the Marine uh, facilitate. There is the Norwegian Polar Institute. Uh, they run, uh, they have one station in Antarctica, toll station in Queens Mountland. Um, and then also a lot, yeah, so there's research conducted coming from the Norwegian Polar Institute, but uh, like Renato also pointed out that a lot of it also comes from, uh, from uh, university-based projects going to different places throughout the Arctic. Okay, fabulous. Um, you've kind of already begun answering these questions already. You've said some of these things already. I was going to ask what, in your opinions, the greatest differences and similarities are between the Arctic and the Antarctic. And I was also actually going to ask um, what would excite you most about visiting the opposite pole, but you've since both said that you've actually been to, like, Renata, you've been to Alaska, and Micah, you've been to the Antarctic as well. So, <laughs> so having been to both, what were the biggest kind of similarities and differences that you noticed? But then also in general, just in, in the nature of the environments, etc. cetera. Uh, I think for, for me, it was quite a big uh, difference, but that was because in, uh, in Greenland, we were in a small camp on the Greenland ice sheet. Uh, and my stay in Antarctica was on uh, King's George's uh, Island in the Chilean Research Station, um, which is a it's a glaciated island. But that part of like the peninsula, uh, there's no um, no ice. So I, in Greenland, I felt like I was really in another world because it was in every directions for hundreds, maybe some even thousands of kilometers. It was all flat and white. And you really start to appreciate the color in the sky and clouds um, because there is so little to look at. Um, whilst in Antarctica, well, the at least for the environment, um, it, it was yeah, it, we were like uh, close to the ocean, uh, lots of rocks and more topography uh, going on, but then. Uh, when it comes to the stay in the the camps or station itself, uh, I think a really big uh, similarity is that it's a uh, it feels like a really small and close community, no matter with how many people you are um, in the place, because everyone is there for. Uh, for similar reasons, which is all like science focused and and 
Arctic, Antarctic, climate change, um, et cetera. So everyone has like this bigger uh, focus, which is the same. So it was interesting to see uh, that even though, um, you know, in, in uh, Antarctica, I was in a Spanish, uh, like the, the first language was uh, Spanish. And I know some Spanish, but it's not great. But even though, uh, even though uh, there's those inconveniences, it still feels like a really small enclosed community because you're there for similar reasons. Sure. Sorry, that was a really hard question because that has to compare like any any base. <laughs> it's really <laughs> they all seem to be pretty unique in my limited experience. So <laughs> yeah, I, I I think it also um, fair to say that it, it it really depends on the research station that you end up arriving mm -hmm. because um, Mike's experience was in the biggest uh, research station that Chile has and which it, it can sustain between 60 to 80 people. And that is co co continuously changing, but it also, uh, we, it, that's the only place in Chile <laughs> sort of in which your neighbors are China and Russia. So when you, when you, when you walk like a one kilometer far from that station and uh, you, you, you get to China and it's like culturally it, it is China and Russia is the same. Russia is less than hundred meters. Uh, from the from the Chilean stations, and you walk a little bit over there, and you go to the souvenir store or the church that of, of Orthodox church that Russia has over there. So this mix is just incredible over there on the on the and like like Micah points out, it's we're all with the same goal, uh, but it's inevitable that the our cultural differences will merge. Uh, with each other and and it's it's just really rich uh, and 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 that's I think that's one of the reasons why I feel like personally like my process of growing as a human being it's it's been also affected with my experience in Antarctica. On the other hand, you have this um, this completely different experience, which is what Mikey was saying regarding maybe the station in in. Greenland. I'm not. I'm not sure if it's specifically there. But when I went to um, when I was doing my PhD, I was in a very remote refugee in Antarctica, and no, no internet connection, no phone. We had only satellite phone for emergencies, and just staying there in plain nature for for like, in, in this case, one one time was for five months, and it just gives you a completely different perspective or experience than what you would get in an station with so many scientists around it, which is like a tiny town, basically. Escudero, which is the station of where Mike and I have been at the same time in Antarctica, it's a completely different uh, experience. When I was in, in Livingston Island, I think that my, the experience that I managed to have over there, it's very similar to the experience that I have in the Illusion Island, because when I was in the Illusion Islands, there was just really nothing other than we, we, we end up running into a, a ghost city over there that was completely empty. You, we will see the houses uh, and, and, and even the place. It's like a, I don't know, like, like a huge strategy happened, but it didn't. They just left and they, le they leave the plates and things and still in the tables on that city. And there was also a lot of World War II um, vessels sinking, et cetera. We, we were diving in the Legion Islands. And that experience is very similar to my experience in refugees around Antarctica. Like the connection with nature is probably fairly unique. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, I think 
yeah, everyone's experience with the polls always is pretty um, unique for them, isn't it? Yeah, it's fantastic. Yes, as I say, it's very difficult to uh, compare. Um, if you had to pick, um, apart from the things we've already discussed, um, actually, they might be the answer. What do you think is the biggest difference between the Arctic and the Antarctic? We play with a lot of differences when we put together uh, the the different data points. Maybe I think to me the human connection with uh, the Arctic and Antarctica. That actually, I mean, and, and and that's why I still think I haven't, even though I went to the Illusion Island, I haven't been in Nepal like the way I really wanted to be, <laughs> which is knowing that the actual cultural heritage that comes from the indigenous presence in Antarctic and in Arctic and and how this is related to management as well. We were we were hearing in one of your po- uh, one of the podcasts um, how marine protected areas were also kind of defined, uh, taking that into consideration. In, when it comes to marine protected areas in, in Antarctica, it's uh, it's related more to the fisheries that occur seasonally, but not really uh, because they might affect a, a specific human uh, human group that lives in a, in the continent. I think that's one of the biggest ones, because when it comes to biology, there were like, they're very similar ecosystems. We even found that there was about the same amount of seals uh, of pinnipeds in, in Antarctica and the Arctic. Well, there was at some point uh, some sort of a, at least a representative of what it would be a, a, a polar bear, the equivalent of the polar bear could be, for example, the, the leopard teal in, in, in Antarctica as well. Um, you do in Antarctica, in Antarctica, you do have way more um, terrestrial life than what you can find in, in Antarctica. I think that's one biologic, in, in, when it comes to biology, I think that that's one of the major differences as well. And also that the, at, at least the um, trophic web of Antarctica, and w- when we talked about megafauna itself mostly, it really rely on krill. And it's sustained by krill, and therefore, the re- if you remove that component of the whole network, it will provoke more collapse than what you can see in Arctica, in, in the Arctic, when where you would you see that um, uh, pinnipeds and all, and other species rely on not just one but several more other potential prey. Sure, that's quite an important difference, isn't it? I suppose with lots of potential knock-on effects for all sorts of things like fishing and quotas and etc. Yeah, it's probably one of those effects that's a bit more kind of below the radar, I suppose, that people probably don't think about as much, perhaps. But um, yeah, equally as important. Yeah, there was a really nice uh, paper last year um, in which they gathered together tracking um, information. It was Dr. Hindle from Australia, but there's a lot of other people that was all the dream team of, of marine mammals and birds, marine and, and mammals and birds uh, ecology, they put together almost 4,000 records of tracking data. And they are fairly consistent to where the, the locations in which animals are um, feeding uh, and, and, and eating basically krill are the exact same locations that uh, the krill industry is, is extracting krill, which it makes sense because at the end, fisheries uh, behave like a predator um, and, and when it comes to that, they will go to places and, and respond to the changes and distribution of these preys exactly the way they, uh, the uh, predators, will, natural predators, will do there. Um, yeah. 
That's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah, of course. I mean, of course it's true, isn't it? But you always, people, I don't know, you think of humans as separate, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're, we're present. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so going back to the question, what we think is a, like a large difference between the Arctic and Antarctic is that, um, so while we were setting up this outreach activity, uh, we also learned from our uh, uh, members and other uh, fields of research. Uh, so actually, we learned things ourselves too during uh, setting up this uh, outreach activity. Uh, and one of the things is that in uh, in the Arctic, there is a really big decline uh, of sea ice over the years. So just how you already mentioned at the start of the podcast is that the Arctic is ocean surrounded by land and the Antarctic is land surrounded by ocean. Um, and the the ocean in the Arctic is is at like higher uh, or the higher uh, latitudes, uh, making it even more uh, sensitive to 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 temperature changes and climate change. Uh, so in the Arctic, we see actually therefore a great decline in uh, in sea ice, which can have a really uh, big effect on well global. Uh, air temperatures, but also uh, on on local ecology, and uh, perhaps maybe in the future, opening up for uh, for shipping routes and also have an, an economical impact as well. Yeah, I kind of tend to think purely not based on any fact <laughs> that maybe you know the Arctic has not more to lose, but it's perhaps more threatened. It just seems like you know. If all the ice melts in the Arctic, then, you know, the ice is gone. But I feel like it's going to take longer in the Antarctic. I've got no idea if that's true. <laughs> I'm going to have glaciologists <laughs> coming at me. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, it is likely going to take longer. I mean, just looking at Greenland and Antarctica, which is also in comparison we made. So not looking at like the other ice in the Arctic, but Greenland has the capacity of raising global sea levels by uh, around seven metres whilst Antarctica uh, can raise global sea levels by around 70 meters if i'm not wrong yeah wow <laughs> so there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot more to to melt yeah yeah i think i think it's a more direct path of um of losing <laughs> like it would be more fast probably but at the end in the case of antarctica at least which um i handle a little better um the, the, redu- the reduction of ice is also interfering with reproductive stages of, of krill. And, and although it's been a debate in science and general, but it, uh, we still know, we can still see that when we have these very, very hot uh, summers and, 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 and some of the atmospheric uh, events uh, kind of change and, and, and the sea ice extend, it, it gets reduced in the winter, then you, you have a year in which there is less availability of krill, for example. And if you have no sea ice extension, and then like in a, in the long term process, then then that would definitely have an effect. This this same paper that I was telling you, together with another one that came last year, we're also starting to show that a krill will move southward, and also kind of uh, kind of, you're seeing that it's less uh, clumped together. So uh, animals will have to travel long dis- longer distances uh, to be able to obtain krill. And those that are uh, faithful to one specific loca- breeding location, they also will have to either 
uh, change the locations, which is sometimes it's almost very unlikely that it's going to happen. You first see that the populations decrease, and then that happens. But there, we we still have not we we have predictive tools, but we still really don't know much about how they're gonna uh, respond to those kind of changes. It's so difficult, isn't it? Because there's, it's just, there's so many potential stresses and then so many reactions that can happen, you know, like one thing will happen first, but you don't know which and to what degree. And then that leads down different routes. It's like something we look at in my research, which is plastic pollution. And we think about it as like a, a multi-stressor and there's no good just considering the effects of plastic pollution on an animal. You have to think about climate and acidification and all kinds of stuff as well it's this kind of knock-on domino effect of our of our impacts in there in polar places yeah. you know oh, it's gonna, it's, uh, it makes it interesting <laughs> yeah and it's 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 exactly what what you what you're saying when you, if you put together a, a model then oh yeah you might you might see that plastic itself will not affect if you don't have for for example a, a major uh, impact but then it, it's the synergistic effect <laughs> well of, of all these multi-factors that will actually going to end up uh, um, ha- having a, a, a higher impact than if you evaluate it by itself all right and that wraps it up for part one Thank you for listening to Polar Times. If that's all that you have time for today, you know the drill. Please go like, rate, and subscribe. But if you want to hear more from Micah and Renato, I have tons more questions for them. So that's going to be coming up in part two. They're going to be talking about some of their fieldwork experience and going to be asking some some more kind of lighthearted and fun questions of them. So if that sounds like something that you would like to hear, then just skip on over part two just hit next do that 30 second increase button or whatever (laughs) it might start playing automatically so there you go thank you once again for coming to polar times and uh, stay tuned for more from my this week's lovely guests Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own. Do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.